You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 160. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. You've reached another Local Maximum. We're going to have a little solo show today as we begin the the 160s here on Local Maximum. Uh, these solo shows are kind of nice. I kind of try to do them every once in a while so that I just get to talk about, uh, well, I get to practice my monologues, which are uh, <laughs> notoriously difficult to do, but um, you know there are a lot of professionals out there who do a very good job of it. I'm getting a little better. It's something I want to be able to do, so there we go. And then I get to like you know do a deep dive on certain issues, do research on them. Maybe I'm not experts on these topics, but uh, hey, uh, I, I kind of understand what's going on. Well, in this case, in the in the blockchain space, I understand what's going on in uh, in another case in in mathematics and media in uh, in, in 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 Bayesian <laughs> Bayesian inference. I know what that is. So we're going to uh, touch on a lot of that stuff today. First of all, a, a, a little bit of an update on the local maximum. Uh, I have like a ton of interviews in the pipeline. So you're going to see a lot of interview shows. Uh, and I'd like to do another math episode at some point. I was going to do a little bit of that today, but I think maybe those are actually pretty good when I have Aaron on the program because he asks very good questions. So maybe I'll wait uh, on that. I was going to talk about um, something that, I, I don't know, some of you engineers, uh, if, you're, if you're statistically inclined uh, and mathematically inclined, might find kind of familiar. Uh, but it's something that... Um, really helped my intuition when I was in grad school, which is the difference between log space and linear space. That is, you know, when can you expect kind of exponential growth and exponential decay? And and when can you just expect linear growth? And having a very good intuition on uh, when to expect what and, and how to transform, you know, numbers that you see and how to interpret graphs. Everybody's got to interpret graphs. And sometimes people ask, well, Give me the log plot. Well, what does that mean, the log plot? Or, or I see a hockey stick plot. You've all seen a hockey stick plot, whether it's climate change or basically every company that you've seen that wants to project growth. We are a growing company. They're going to give you a hockey stick uh, chart that looks like they have very little revenue or profit or users or whatever it is that they want to want to project. And then all of a sudden it shoots up. Well, there's there's... There's a first of all, just because you see that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they are on an unstoppable path to success. Uh, you know, you have to ask a few more questions, and so uh, that's uh, that's something that, um, that 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 it's good to have a good intuition for. I mean, with that stuff, it's a lot that you know you, you actually have to learn about about uh, the business and what's going on. But I think there's also a mathematical component to it where you have to kind of learn to think in terms of you know what. What space am I in? What what mathematical space am I in? Um, is it a rate? Is it a count? Is it a what? And, and what does that mean? So I think we can get into that at some point. I'd like to do that on a future show. Today's show, uh, first we're going to talk about non-fungible tokens, which is this big thing um, in the crypto space. It's an old thing, but uh, it's it's coming back with a vengeance. What does that mean? How is it different from something like Bitcoin, where you know you're just purely on the blockchain? Uh, I hope to give you a little bit of understanding about that today. It's going to can it be, is it like the panacea to help artists and, um, you know, track digital goods? What does that even mean? Uh, you know, digital, um, you know, digital art, digital goods, uh, you know, will, will, will it, 
you know, kind of um, make it easier for people to sell these things on the internet? Um, or, or is it already? And uh, these are kind of important questions to ask. And hey, I don't know, maybe someone out there wants to buy some, uh, some digital art. Maybe you would like to support artists and you are hearing about this new thing and maybe it's worth talking about what, what this is all about. What, what is everyone trying to get into? What are the pros and cons, et cetera? So we're going to talk about that. And then finally, I'm going to talk about uh, this article in the New York Times uh, about, uh, about the rationalists, uh, which is some group that they say that is out in Silicon Valley that I didn't know about, but it's people who preach Bayesian inference. Of course, some of the people that they mention with regard to that uh, preach Bayesian inference. So um, what, well, <laughs> we have to pull apart what's, the New, what, what's true, what's the New York Times speaking, and um, what, uh, what can we say about it? Uh, given you know my love for Bayesian inference as a as a problem solving tool, uh, and you know it doesn't mean that everybody who professes to use it uh, is uh, you know is I, I agree with of course, but <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really interesting to see how the New York Times covers covers these these sub subgroups. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. All right, so that's a five minute introduction. So let's let's just um, let's just get started. So first of all, what is a non-fungible token. I have been lurking in the crypto space, in the Bitcoin space, for a very long time. I found this idea actually comes up time and again. Um, you know, it's not a new new idea. In 2012, 2013, people were writing about this idea called colored coins. I'll link to an article about that from 2013 from uh, Danny Bradbury at CoinDesk. So this has been work in the works for the last eight years. Uh, the term colored coins, I guess, has gone into fashion in favor of non-fungible tokens. Of course, when they were talking about colored coins, they were talking exclusively about Bitcoin because Bitcoin was the only game in town back in 12, 2012, 2013. Maybe not the only game in town, but one of the only games in town. They're like, okay, what if we attach meaning to certain specific Bitcoins? That's what they mean when it's you know, fungible, non-fungible. If it's fungible, that means, hey, I have a Bitcoin, you have a Bitcoin, let's swap. You send me yours, I send you mine. Same with Ethereum. And it's like, okay, we're, we're, we're even. Um, nothing has changed. It's like, I give you a dollar and you give me a dollar. Uh, we are both evenly uh, as well off. Um, or or we, are, we are equally poised to do the, to do the same as, 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 as we had before. Like there, there's no change in the state of the world if that happens. So uh, colored coins, which is now called non-fungible tokens, different non-fungible, it means that these, these coins that are transacted actually, uh, they, they're, they're different. They're all different from each other and they all correspond to something that is going on in a real world. So for example, I mean, I don't know why you do this, but let's say that um, I had a lock on my door, on my front door, and basically that lock only opens if I sign a transaction uh, with this, uh, you know, with this colored coin. If I'm, I can prove that I'm the owner of this colored coin. I send it to the door, and then the door opens. I can only go through that door once. Uh, so that, that I guess that's something you could do. I don't know why you do it. But uh, people have been looking for reasons to, to use this thing. And, you know, one of the reasons that have come up is kind of, you know, digital art. You know, uh, a, a lot of the ideas that have come out of this is, you know, a lot of people, at, at, you know, some of these uh, blockchain 
blockchain conferences for a long time, blockchain videos, blogs, you know, the, the blockchain can replace the, the notary. You can prove that data existed before a certain point in time, and you can prove that a certain person created some data. So why not apply this to art? I mean, you know, that way I can prove who owns the digital art and who created it, or at least if I kind of register the digital art in a, if I create something, you know, like I am, I, I, for example, let's suppose I create something in MS Paint. I create a very nice, you know, I use the, uh, the spray paint tool and I go whoosh, 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 whoosh. And I'm like, yes, this is modern art, beautiful. So I want to uh, take, the, uh, take the, the, the file and distill it down into a hash. I could put it into the, uh, the blockchain and boom, I can prove now. I mean, don't, you know, don't worry about too much about how that works, but now I can prove that, hey, I had this thing uh, at this point in time. So if I'm the first person to register it on a blockchain, then I could show that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the creator if, you know, you know, unless, of course, I, you know, forgot to do it and then the second person did it. But let's put that aside for a second. Um, so, all right, um, great. I can prove who owns digital art. Um, now, there are certain reasons maybe to be skeptical of this um, because the great innovation with something like Bitcoin is that it can't be duplicated. The Bitcoin, uh, owning a Bitcoin is not the same as owning a file or a piece of data because if you own a piece of data, then you know, that data can be copied infinitely. So Bitcoin is, is, is not, um, it's actually not um, information that you own it's it's like information that you have access to in a, in a database but it's not something that you you own and so it, digital art by its nature is something that you can copy again and again and again although it would be interesting uh, to challenge a digital artists to create a piece of art that is that is not like that maybe that is um, kind of kind of a challenge there but you know look Traditional art, whether it's a song or an image, or you know something like that, a three uh, D rendering, um, a three D world, even um, whatever it is, it's pure information, and so it can be broken down into ones and zeros. It can be duplicated again and again and again. So, if I were to, so I totally understand being able to register it. Hey, I came up with this in the blockchain. Uh, I got there first, and I get bragging rights. That I totally understand. But the question is, um, let's suppose I, I make a piece of art and I say, hey, I want to limit it to 100 people who can enjoy it. Or I want to say, hey, an unlimited number of people can enjoy it and download it, but I want to make sure that everybody who, who downloads it and enjoys it uh, pays me. You know, how can you do that? Is that possible? Uh, so I've been reading a lot about this because it's like, because it's hard to wrap your head around, um, you know, a, a few comments uh, on, on some articles I read. I read from uh, Scott Belsky on Medium, who's obviously a believer in this thing. He, I, I quote, this NFT, NFT meaning non-fungible token, this NFT world is likely the greatest unlock of artist opportunity in over a century this isn't a suboptimal or fringe version of the real world art economy. It is a vastly improved one. This is, I should link, I'll link to this. This is the article about the furry Lisa, which is a derivative work 
on the Mona Lisa, but of course, Leonardo da Vinci was not able to uh, uh, get his, uh, the slide his thing into the blockchain. No, that's fine. I, that's another question, actually. Uh, derivative, derivative works. What's, what are the rules on that? And I, I guess it's going to be complicated. Um, but he gives eight reasons why this is so great. First of all, anti-counterfeit. So again, while I can make copies of art, I can prove uh, that, um, that I'm the owner. So that really helps. Um, and maybe you could make different contracts that say, hey, you know, I get to enjoy it uh, for a life for forever if I pay this amount, or I can, I can rent it for that amount, or I can, you know, give it to friends. I don't know. Um, so what does this mean for... Um, so, so let me try to break out what, what this means. I did a little bit of thinking of this. So first of all, is this anything more than just a token of authentication from the author and nothing else, like acknowledgement of proof that the author created this art? And then you kind of trade that, that token of authentication around. Let's say the author buys, sells it to someone, then sells it to someone else, then, then, then I buy it, then I'm like, hey, I own this piece of art, although <laughs> there's not much I can do about it because people are, people are copying it freely. Um, well... That's one way of doing it. Would, would, would people actually trade like that? Um, a second way is, well, what if, what if I needed the token to view the art? In other words, the art is there on some blockchain encrypted, and the only person who can unlock that, uh, that file is the person who owns the token. Now, I think... And unless there's some crazy workaround to this that, that can get it to work, which I would be very impressed, I think that, okay, that's doable. You could say, hey, once I own the token, then I can download that piece of art, and then I can be ensured that I'm, I'm the only one who has it. I mean, first of all, you know, you'd have to somehow be able to, uh, to look at a preview or something so you know what you're buying. Um, but... Uh, or maybe, you know, it could just be, hey, the, the people like this author so much they want it. Um, but it's not, it's not like Bitcoin because where, where it's ironclad. And, and, and it's, um, I'll tell you why, because <laughs> any of the previous owners could have also unlocked that art. And so now they have it on their hard drives. They could be passing it out. So uh, there's now, maybe they want to have give you assurances that they're not going to do that somehow because then when they sell it to you they can uh, you'll, you'll be willing to pay a lot more so that's that's another possibility um, and then a third question that I want to ask is you know what if some of these uh, uh, what if some of these tokens are lost so for example like let's suppose you know I can wrap my head around the idea if someone loses their Bitcoin okay it's like it's like losing money you know you lost a bunch of money. But um, there's nothing in the, uh, it's not like if you lose the deed to a house, nobody will ever be allowed into that house again. It's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's completely off limits for all humanity, for all time. That's not how the world works. Um, and likewise, if you lose money, yes, you lose the money. But, um, you know, it's, think of it as kind of a donation to everybody else who has Bitcoin. It's, uh, it's no actual um, economic goods or services are removed from the economy because that happened. Whereas with this token, uh, if you have a smart contract going that's distributing art, and then all of a sudden the, the, the artist loses the token, let's say they're getting paid every time 
uh, somebody downloads that piece of art and it's all working through the blockchain and let's say they, they lose their token, so now they can no longer get paid. Would you be willing to pay for that piece of art if, uh, if you know, the artist lost the token and that money is just going, you know, into a black hole? People might be like, well, um, what, does that mean nobody gets to, gets to uh, enjoy that art again? Does that mean that, you know, nobody gets to... Um, uh, you know what happens, or does that mean that you know people people will they 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 will just pay into a black hole? Well, I think I've been looking for some answers to these questions, and I think I've found them. Um, so, uh, what, what I think a really good blog post that I found was uh, on a in a blog called Super Rare on Beta Sent, where I think they're actually selling these things. Um, what they ask is you know. Why would I buy a piece of digital art on Super Rare when I can just download the art file for free? Am I missing something? So apparently, in this case, you know, you are—they uh, are selling art, um, and they're selling digital art on through NFTs, and that art is also available to be downloaded for free. So what are they doing here? Here's their answer: on Super Rare, each tokenized artwork is created directly by the artist using their cryptographic keys to create the NFT. Thus, it is the artist's intent that the original, original collectible digital artwork is the token. Yes, anyone can download and view the image for free, but they don't own it, and they can't gain value from it without owning the NFT as well. Now, now gain value is kind of an interesting term. Like Some people would say, hey, I gain value just by being able to see the image. That's all I want to do, so why would I buy it? And for those people... Uh, maybe, but let me continue. Um, as a collector, you want as many people as possible to be downloading and enjoying the artworks that only you provably own because this is how the artwork gains in value. So imagine if one million people around the world were featuring an artwork that only you owned on, on digital frames in their houses. That is a piece of art that has real value. So this is interesting in that, now I've seen these digital frames before. They're like small screens or maybe larger screens that you could put up in your house and they display art and maybe the art can um maybe it's uh maybe it's art in motion maybe there's some some movement around so it's kind of a it's kind of like um it could be like a Harry Potter type thing where the guy in the or gal in the in the portrait can can wave at you or something like that and you can you know, swap through your different uh, pieces of art on that frame. And maybe it's built into the frame that, hey, only things that are going to be displayed on that frame are things that uh, that this person has the rights to. Maybe they don't own the token, but maybe they're paying the person who owns the token. They're paying the either the artist directly or the collector that the artist ended up selling to. So that to me still raises the question, why can't I just create a digital frame that can show me any piece of art it downloads? I mean, after all, I could probably trip out a computer screen to do this and you know, any, uh, yeah, any image I download can be shown on that. But uh, hey, let's remember that iTunes still works even though you can hear any of that music for free. I mean, people have uh, both, they both download songs for for small amounts of money, and people also have kind of subscription models that you know take a, a monthly fee and then do payouts to different artists. So, uh, it, and and people have been, have been doing that for many years. So uh, you know, and 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 it's sort of undercut the kind of well, it, it was sort of a compromise between 
the free song movement start, uh, kicked off by Napster and, you know, the, the ancient music industry that, uh, you know, wanted to maintain uh, things in the same way. Um, you know, when, when you have something like iTunes that, that Apple came out with, it's like, yeah, we're going to make it just really convenient and really easy for you to buy songs. And then later on, other companies like, you know, Pandora, Spotify, and, and Apple itself come out with subscription models as well. So it's it's a convenience model, it's a do right by the artist model, and it's just, hey, if this is, if this is, if I am an art enthusiast and I want this in my house, then this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna subscribe to it or I'm gonna buy it or or whatever. I'm not gonna try to, you know, uh, bootleg it, even even if um even if it's legal in my country to to do so, you know, I I, I don't know what the laws are around here. So also so uh, what I think is going to happen or what I think they're, they're aiming for is like, yes, you could download this stuff for free. The work needed to get around the barriers will be uh, considerable because all of the digital art frames that are created by companies that want to sell you art are going to have a rights management system. So, um, you know, unless you kind of, uh, uh, you know, build one yourself out of a computer meant to uh, meant to bootleg art. I mean, you know, if you're a pro artist, you know, who would do that? Maybe. So, uh, I think that that's kind of the model. And um, you know, you would need voluntary compliance on top of the blockchain. You know, the blockchain, uh, any blockchain, uh, can prove who the artist is. Uh, it can prove who started the token. It could prove who uh, owns the token now. You can um, you, you who think of the token as the piece of art, as the colored coin, as the that's the NF, NFT, the, the non fungible token, um, and so you know you can prove that you paid that person, so that could uh, you know that could tell your digital frame like hey throw up this artwork, but it does have it does require a little bit of voluntary compliance on the part of the people who build the hardware and the buyers and sellers to, um, to, uh, to abide by all of these rules. Whereas, you know, when you get into kind of the pure kind of Bitcoin mindset, it's like, no, like you, you, you can't get around it uh, 100%. So it's a little bit of a different mindset, I think, between the two groups. But, you know, hey, this could work. Uh, this could work. So um, it's very interesting. If you have any thoughts on uh, on the idea of uh, non fungible tokens, on the idea of uh, digital art, uh, please let me know at localmaxradio@gmail.com or comment on the locals group locals or uh, maximum dot locals dot com. I think I don't know. I've never had a digital picture frame, but. Uh, after reading all this stuff about it, maybe maybe it's something that uh, that I, I'd like to get. Um, another article I'm posting up CNBC NFTs: Why Digital Art and Sports Collectibles Are Suddenly So Popular. So this is definitely in the popular consciousness right now. So um, definitely, and and uh, an NFT skeptics guide uh, of which I am one. I'm I'm sort of not. I'm, I, even though I'm saying it could work, I'm sort of like asking all these questions. So I'll, I'll definitely post these uh, up. And uh, and I hope you enjoy, and I hope we'll uh, we will take a look at this topic as we continue on our future local maximums. Okay, the second one is this uh, article in the New York Times that came out a couple weeks ago, uh, mid February. Such a weird 
story uh, on, on the rationalists. So this is a New York Times article a couple of years ago that uh, some folks have been talking about. It's the one about a Slate Star Codex blog written by Scott Alexander, who discontinued and moved his blog after being outed with his full name over the summer by the New York Times. So now they have another article about him. I initially didn't follow this. I just saw just more shenanigans from the New York Times. You know, another blogger doesn't want his real name out there for obvious reasons and familiar reasons. Um, I have my real name out there for the local maximum. It hasn't caused me any problems yet, but uh, <laughs> you know, you never know. It, it, I, I'm not um, oblivious to the fact that there are risks. Um, but I heard, so, so I wasn't following this, but I heard there was some discussion of Bayesian inference in the article, which I talk about. I talk about a Bayesian inference a ton. I mean, we started that on episode zero. So uh, let's, let's see it. This was brought to my attention by... Uh, by some of the folks in our Locals page at maximum.locals.com. I'm not familiar with uh, the uh, Slate Star Codex blog, so whatever secondhand information I get from the New York Times of all places, well, I'll give that its due weight. Let me just put it that way. So the New York Times just starts out by describing the blog and the community around it, the commenters, as politically mixed with a few extremist characters built in, but they are the minority. They also say, quote, uh, the blog was also an, the epicenter of a community called the Rationalists, a group that aimed to re-examine the world through cold and careful thought. And I, there's kind of a tone here that the New York Times is like, ooh, thought, be afraid. Uh, but okay, uh, careful thought doesn't sound that bad. The New York Times wordsmithing a little bit there with the word cold, like they're going to... Um, I don't know, they're, they're, they're going to say, hey, it's, uh, uh, well, <laughs> every single ideology and crazy group that kind of thinks that their ideas are rational. I shouldn't say every, but, but a lot of them do. A lot of, a lot of them have justifications. So it's like um, maybe, maybe thought without, um, the, the implication is it's thought without um, consideration of uh, morality or emotion or whatever. I, now, I suspect that that's not true. I suspect that a lot of the people they're talking about are, are actually not only engaging thought, but are thoughtful about it. But, uh, but uh, we'll see. All right, uh, they continue on. The New York Times uh, says that the, the, um, the rationalist community and their articles are astoundingly verbose, with, which is, if accurate, is probably why I haven't read a lot of this stuff. Uh, quote, uh, they challenged the popular idea and upheld the right to discuss contentious issues. So... My reaction is I, I like to think that I do that here. Actually, I think that most podcasters and bloggers and you know independent uh, independent creators and, and and talkers or whatever you want to call it do do think of themselves as challenges and upholding the right to discuss contentious issues. Like why? What would you do if you're a blogger or a podcaster who wants to do the opposite? If you only take conventional ideas and you know sort of make sure that discussions don't get too uncomfortable. What would you do? Maybe go work at the New York Times, for all I know. I don't know. So anyway, they call this, this particular blog, the Scott Alexander uh, blog, uh, 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 Slate Star Codex blog, a window into the Silicon Valley psyche. Um, and I think that that is a crazy phrase coming from the New York Times because they're, they're talking about this, this small group of people as 
embodying Silicon Valley, where it really doesn't. I mean, and here's an interesting quote that kind of gives you a, a sense of how the people of the New York Times think about Silicon Valley. Um, whereas, you know, I think that the ideas and thought processes of most people in Silicon Valley, most engineers, most executives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are probably more in line with the New York Times than um, are in line with this, this so-called rationalist subgroup. But here's an interesting quote from the New York Times. At Twitter and Facebook, leaders were reluctant to move words from their platforms, even when those words were untrue or could lead to violence. At some AI labs, they released products, including facial recognition systems, digital assistants, and chatbots, even while knowing they can be biased against women and people of color and sometimes spew hateful speech. Why hold anything back? That was the answer a rationalist would arrive at. Now, if you've been in Silicon Valley, this is if you've been in a big tech company or a small tech company, a startup, and anywhere, if you've been talking to people, this is the, the the thought process of everyone is completely the opposite of that. Twitter and Facebook were not reluctant to move words from their platform. How could the New York, How could the New York Times even like write that with a straight face? They've re- removed a ton of stuff. I mean, we've been documenting this on the local maximum. Uh, for two and a half years, and it's been going on longer than that. And and what we've documented is, you know, we've just had a few discussions about it. You know, there there have been lots and lots of more discussions about it on the internet. It is widespread. They have an entire entire teams of people dedicated to removing words from their platforms. They they took uh, Twitter took off the president of the United States. Oh, you know, they're very reluctant to take people out. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so um, and 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 the idea that. Um, AI can be uh, biased is, is, is certainly, th- I mean, look, it's certainly there, but the, the idea that no one talks about this in, in, in big tech is crazy. It's like every other talk we get is about that. So, okay, I can't believe that this is what the New York Times actually believes and publishes, but let's go on. Uh, the, the tech industry, again, like I said, is probably more in line with the New York Times, most people in, in, in it. Uh, so let's get into the basics. So that's not really what I. That's not really the reason why I, I take a look at this article. By the way, the article is very long. I'll post it if you want to see it at localmaxradio.com/slash/one-sixty. Um, but um, I won't get into the whole thing. I just let's just get into the Bayesian stuff because this is where it gets a little weird. Um, so I talk about Bayesian inference a lot because and, and and the reason why I think about it a ton and have been for ten years is because it's an incredibly effective method to approach, you know, first machine learning problems and statistical problems, those that I I thought about in grad school and deployed successfully at work. And second, it's great to, it's a great problem solving mechanism to solve real world questions, real answer real world questions and solve real world problems. World is a hard word to say when your mouth gets garbled. Anyway, the Bayesian inference is closely linked to the scientific method. In fact, it, it is a form of the scientific method. So all of these associations that the New York Times uh, writes about, you know, they need to be considered independently just because someone says, hey, uh, I'm using the scientific method um, or I follow it in some area of my life. That doesn't mean that everything that that person says is science. And if it's, it's, and, and, and if it's crazy, that doesn't mean that, oh, well, I guess science must be wrong. Same thing, I, I guess... Uh, I guess Bayesian inference must be wrong because that guy's a Bayesian and they're nuts. So, I mean, that's this, this sort of like uh, 
association trick that the media plays is something that uh, you, you, can't, you can't point out enough. So let me read a little bit more from this. The roots of the Slate Star Codex, because let, let's actually hear about what this group is, is like. Uh, the roots of Slate Star Codex trace back more than a decade to a polemicist and self-described AI researcher named Eliezer Yudkovsky, who believed that intelligent machines could end up destroying humankind. He was a driving force behind the rise of the rationalist. By the way, I, I am not too familiar with Eliezer Yudkovsky's works, but I've read a couple articles. I've, had, I've tried to have him on the show. Um, I didn't get any response yet. Uh, the rationalists saw themselves as people who applied scientific thought to almost any topic. This often involved, quote, Bayesian reasoning as a way of using statistics and probability to inform beliefs. And so it's interesting, by the way, this article uh, talks about Bayesian reasoning as if it's some shady thing, but it links to an article from the New York Times, I think it's the science section, that extols the virtue of Bayesian reasoning um, as the scientific method. Like, let me, right, how to think like an epidemiologist. So it's basically saying, this is from August 2020, say, you know, talking about how Bayesian inference can be used to uh, think about uh, you know, um, COVID data and, and epidemic data in, in, like, a, in like a positive sense, uh, so in, in the science section. So it, it's, not, it's not shady, according to the New York Times. Um, so it's interesting, you know, the rationalists, uh, they, they write, the, because the rationalists believe that AI could end up destroying the world, uh, not entirely novel fear to anyone who has seen science fiction movies. They wanted to guard against it. Many worked for and donated money to MIRI, an organization created by Mr. Yudkovsky, whose stated mission was AI safety. So already there's this kind of unspoken inference in the article about Bayesian inference, that Bayesian inference leads to being worried about AI taking over. So that's, that's kind of a pretty big leap. So, you know, there's people who say, hey, Bayesian inference slash scientific method is a good thing. I think that should be a broad range of people. That that could be like kind of a good um, kind of a good sort of operating platform that we could have discussions on. And then being worried to about AI taking over. Well, that's only people who come to that conclusion, and that's sort of a that's a very contentious conclusion. I mean, I, I wrote uh, we've talked about how. Elon Musk is very worried about it, but there are some other smart people who are, who are not worried about it. So, you know, who knows? Okay, New York Times also wrote, the community was organized and close-knit. Two Bay Area organizations ran seminars and high school summer camps on the rational way of thinking. Quote, the curriculum covers topics from causal modeling and probability to game theory and cognitive science. Read a website promising teens a summer of rationalist learning. How can we understand our own reasoning, behavior, and emotions? How can we think more clearly and better achieve our goals? Um, again, I just want to point out the New York Times using some articles like, because first of all, this sounds like a really cool summer program. I'd like to go uh, just from that description. But the New York Times says, uh, hey, uh, they, uh, the, uh, the website was promising teens, blah, 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 blah. It almost sounds like it's, you know, it's misleading them and like, you know, uh, uh, um, leading them into some kind of cult is, is what they're saying. So I, it's hard to suss out what's really going on and what the, what, what the New York Times is trying to imply. Uh, so they also say the rationalist held regular meetups around the world from Silicon Valley to Amsterdam to Australia. Some lived in group houses. Some practiced polyamory. 
uh, quote, they are basically just hippies who talk a lot more about Bayes' theorem than the original hippies, said Scott Aronson, a University of Texas professor who has stayed in one of their group houses. So I don't know. Uh, look, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I have not met anyone in this group. Uh, my um, my ap- approach to Bayesian inference is not... Um, is not uh, is not based on what this group is doing. Although it sounds like they have some like smart ideas coming out of it, and then it sounds like there are some people who are trying to smear it, but they're not really they're, they're not like that mean. They're just like okay hippies that talk about Bayes theorem. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't like so weird. Some are some practice polyamory. Like okay. I've I've never heard that in, in like a like oh Bayesianism leads to polyamory, but it's like, you know what exactly is, um, what exactly is is the relevance of that statement? Like, you know, if I were to talk about my company Foursquare and I said, hey, some practice polyamory. Well, look, I don't know if any of my coworkers practice polyamory, but I'm sure if you took the 600 people, you'd probably find a few people. So what like like in in, in any group. So I, that's just a very weird <laughs> sentence to put in. Um, again, I think, I guess now my point is just the New York Times is just being awfully shady in the way that they're talking about this. And so I certainly don't read this and read, oh, here's a group of Bayesians I need to avoid. This is like, oh, here's a group of Bayesians that I kind of want to learn more about. I probably don't agree with them on everything, but, uh, you know, hey, hit piece from the New York Times, not, uh, not a bad thing on your resume. So like, is there, because the New York Times is trying to kind of a guilt by association because a lot of what, and, and even what the New York Times is saying, like a lot of what they are, are talking about sounds like a reasonable thing to do. Oh, they're covering co- topics from causal mo- modeling and the probability of game theory and the cognitive science. Oh my God, look at these people. They're going to make millions of dollars when they apply this to financial modeling and, and advertising. <laughs> you know, but like, like, it's some, uh, like it's some kind of creepy thing. Um, but, um, but then they, they, they say, oh, the other part of it is strange and it's very different from us. But it's like, New York Times, who cares? I, I, I know I don't. Okay, so I'm just going to round out this section with, for Kelsey Piper, who embraced these ideas in high school around 2010, the movement was about learning how to do good in a world that changes very rapidly. Yes, the community thought about AI, she said, but it also thought about reducing the price of healthcare and slowing the spread of disease. Slate Star Codex, which sprung up in 2013, helped her develop a calibrated trust in the medical system. Many people she knew, she said, felt duped by their psychiatrist, for example, who felt uh, who they felt weren't clear about the costs and benefits of certain treatment. That was not the rationalist way. Um, the implication is it's the rationalist way to question things. Well, how who can argue with with questioning things? Um, it's it's kind of a weird thing that the the media tries to do where. They say th- things that sound reasonable, and then they say things that are kind of hit PC. And by putting it together in this way, they could say, "Well, it's balanced. We said good things, and we said bad things." But it's just um, I'm having trouble articulating it. But there's kind of a weird way in this co- in the in, in the way those good things and bad things come together that does not um, that doesn't that doesn't work. And, and they kind of make uh, very reasonable things like uh, I don't know questioning uh, like asking questions about the world sound like awfully shady. Um, so, so anyway, I just wanted to talk about that. If you have further comments, 
uh, talk to me at uh, uh, localmaxradio at gmail.com or let's have a discussion on the Locals platform, maximum.locals.com. The article goes on. It mentions Silicon Valley names like Peter Thiel and Sam Altman. I'm not going into all this, but I will say there's kind of this implication that those people are the embodiment of Silicon Valley, Peter Thiel. But Peter Thiel is kind of an outlier in Silicon Valley. Uh, so um, in terms of like the way he thinks, I read his book, Zero to One, um, and he has... Uh, very interesting views of, of business, and he's done very well on, as an investor. So, and Sam Altman, I know, was a, 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 ran a Foursquare competitor uh, in, in the early days. Uh, so, so that's an interesting name to come up. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't. Um, this is uh, <laughs> this is all very interesting. It's the first that I'm hearing about this. Uh, this group, which honestly just sounds like a, 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 a summer program uh, to like learn stuff and go to kind of go to colleges and, and learn about math and stuff. I don't know. I did those summer programs. They were great. But um, who knows what we'll find out about this in the, in the future. All right. Uh, tons of guests coming up. Like I said, I already did one interview from uh, someone who's who's really had enough of this uh, of of this uh, you know social media censorship, and he says it's not going to stop there. He's very concerned about it, so I'm going to play that. I am going to have I've got another one on Bitcoin that I'm doing this week, and I've got another one on AI that I'm doing this week, and maybe I'll have an interview on locals I'm doing this week. So tons of interviews this week. Looking forward to it. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and their online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power. Thank you.